Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan. I'm one of your hosts and I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications at EAA. Sitting here next to me... I'm the EA Museum Programs Coordinator, known as Chris Henry. Yes, if that is your real name. <laughs> Over across the table. Uh, Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. And uh, who's sitting next to you, Tom? Well, today we have Joe Norris, uh, who's our Flight Training Manager here at EAA. Uh, he's also one of the directors at the Vintage Aviation Association. He's been around EAA for a very long time and actually gave me my uh, tailwheel endorsement about uh, five years ago. Um, and uh, he's been working with us for the last couple of years on our uh, Air Academy uh, flights, our, uh, our Sport Pilot Academy, uh, and has also worked quite a bit with the government department, um, just uh, giving us a lot of very sage advice over the last couple of years. So, uh, Joe, it's great to have you on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. And, and Joe, uh, the one word I would always use to describe you since the day we met is sage. Sage, so, yes, absolutely. And it's, it, it's not the aroma necessarily. It's just more the attitude. Exactly. <laughs> So anyway, today we're going to do things a little bit uh, a little bit differently. We're not going to uh, put Joe through the normal, uh, grueling, uh, hard-hitting journalistic uh, interview process uh, that we're we're absolutely not known for on this show. Um, we're uh, we just thought we wanted to get uh, four nerds together, and uh, and you're welcome, Joe. And uh, uh, let's just talk about some of our uh, some of our favorite flying stories. Uh, maybe it's your first solo. Maybe it's a particularly special flight. Whatever it is, we'll just kind of go around the table and uh, and see what happens over the next half hour or so. So, uh, Joe, you're the guest. Do you want to do the honors and f start off? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, thanks uh, Thanks for giving me the opportunity to tell a, real, a story that means an awful lot to me. Um, I want to tell a story about uh, kind of how I got started with EAA. Um, First of all, just quick background, I grew up on a, a cranberry farm in central Wisconsin, and, and we had a, a gentleman who was our, well, we called them crop dusters at the time, but they're now called ag pilots or, or aerial, applicators. aerial applicators, all those right. fancy terms they use, but yes. he was our local crop duster. He was a gentleman who was a World War II veteran, had a steerman that he used for his crop dusting business, and he was EAA number 158. Wow. Jim Miles is the gentleman's name, and... Uh, Grew up around him, and, and uh, my dad was an aviation enthusiast, so Jim was always over at the house telling stories and whatnot. And uh, he came to me as a 14-year-old boy and said, you know, they're moving the fly-in from Rockford up to Oshkosh, and I'm going to fly the, my Piper Supercruiser over there, and I've got an empty seat. Would you like to go along? And by the time he said go along, I was already in the airplane. <laughs> um, and so we packed up and, and, and uh, came to Oshkosh uh, that year in 1970 and camped under the wing of the uh, PA-12. And it was just an amazing, eye-opening experience for me, uh, just to see the fly-in, to meet, uh, of course, Jim had known Paul, so I, I got to meet Paul, and Jim had worked for Dwayne Cole, so I got to meet Dwayne Cole and, and a lot of the other uh, greats of the time. And Jim was building a Pitts, so of course I met all the, the, the Curtis Pitts and all the Pitts guys and got to look at a lot of cool airplanes, took a bunch of pictures, which I still have today, and go back and look at uh, to reminisce a little bit each time, but uh, that was really my introduction to EAA and to the, the broader flying community, and, uh, and he gave me a flying lesson on the way over and on the way back as well, which didn't get logged, but truly was my first actual flight lesson, so wow. uh, it was just really a cool deal, and, uh, and that kind of culminated in, in my involvement in EAA and, 
and uh, building an airplane. I built a sonnery too, and just all the crazy things that have happened since then. So it's just an amazing thing. Now, was that your first time in a small airplane, GA airplane? No, not at all. Uh, uh, living on the farm, we had several neighbors that had uh, airplanes, airstrips on their farms. A right. neighbor lived about a mile away, had a Cessna 140, and then uh, ultimately had a Cessna 170. Another neighbor had a Cub. So always getting airplane rides and, and having airplanes around. So I, I really don't remember a time when I didn't want to be a pilot. It's just <laughs> always been something that's been part of my life. So And over the years since then, you've uh, you've had some some great airplanes. You had a Waco UPF-7. I did. Uh, the 180 or 185? Cessna 180, 1955 yeah. model. So And then uh, uh, more recently, uh, Super Cub? Yep. Uh, this is my second Super Cub. Uh, and uh, had started out with a Piper Tri-Pacer, which I converted to a Pacer. It was my first project, was making that conversion. <laughs> Putting it back to normal, in other words. Uh, exactly. No putting offense. The, I the, love the Tri-Pacer. Yeah. It's my favorite nose wheel airplane, but yeah. come on. Yep. The little the, wheel goes in back, that's people. That's right. That's right. And that's, and that's also the airplane that taught me how to fly tailwheel airplanes. So that uh, airplane has a special place in my life as well. But uh, owned a Pitts for a while, built the Sonnery too, as I mentioned before, and just... Uh, you know, my mom used to say I just spent way too much time at the airport. <laughs> and now, here you are making a living at it. Exactly. <laughs> Been at the EAA uh, how long? I uh, started, uh, originally came to EAA in 2001 uh, as, a, as an employee after a couple of years on the Home Built Aircraft Council as a volunteer. Worked here for 10 years and then uh, got lured away to go do some flight instruction in J3 Cubs for a couple of years. And then got lured from there to Sonex and, and worked with them for a few years and then got lured back to EAA. So here I am, uh, here so, I am back again. So Joe is lurable. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tom, you want to dive in uh, dive in next? Or? Yeah, I was trying to think of any particularly entertaining stories. Okay, we'll my... let Chris talk while you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think think back to any particularly uh, interesting stories from my flight training. And I, I mean, aside from just the, um, the, the, you know, kind of amazing discovery that any pilot does in the midst of their flight training, I don't know that there's really anything that stands out. I guess there was one flight I took. Uh, it was my night cross-country flight. Um, I learned to fly, uh, as I've said before, in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, which is northwest of Boston. And my flight instructor wanted to take me out to um, uh, Provincetown, uh, Massachusetts, across Massachusetts Bay, um, basically, so I had some experience flying at night over water, although it was like October when we did this flight. So um, I'm glad that uh, I don't necessarily know that I want to do that far over water at night ever again. Uh, his advice was, go, uh, if, the, if the engine quits, we'll go for the boat or go for the lights because that will probably boat. be boats. Um, and uh, <laughs> you're making a carrier landing out of the <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, at least land next to people somewhere out there. But uh, anyway, I just remember the flight coming back over the city of Boston, and um, we were they. I think they they cleared us through the airspace at like 6,500 feet. And we just had these airliners coming down, like kind of streaming down our left side and then making the turn and going underneath us. And it was really the first time I'd ever been on with ATC, you know, where it was like, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Skyhawk uh, 792 uh, traffic, uh, you know, two miles, 767, report them in sight, you know. <laughs> so that was kind of neat. That is such a such a cool feeling. Um, I did uh, sort of like most of my finish up flight training in Ellensburg, Washington. Uh, where I was going to school at the time. And I had uh, a really good buddy over in Spokane. And I used to fly over and see him all the time. I'd hop in a, uh, usually a Cherokee and go over there. And at that time, um, I think that whole airspace was a Tursa, for those of us that are old enough to remember remember those days. And you had uh, Spokane International Airport, 
uh, which butted up basically right up against Fairchild Air Force Base. So an unusual, unusual setting at the time. Fairchild was an active duty strategic air command base, and you had, and of course this is uh, this is the late '80s, so this is still Cold War time. So you had uh, B-52s on alert, loaded with nukes and everything else. And just about anywhere else in the world, if you flew anywhere near there, you'd be shot down. But flying into Spokane, you would sort of get vectored almost right over the top of them. So like you say, Tom, you get your traffic uh, traffic calls and things. Just flying in there, you know, I'm just a dork in a Cherokee going to see my buddy Mark, and we're going to go get roast beef sandwiches. And and they're telling me, you know, the traffic's at your, you know, 9 o'clock low is a B-52, you know, advise when it's in sight. And I said, oh, I see it. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> I see it all right. And then, but then just going over kind of the edge, looking down at Fairchild and seeing, you know, rows of B-52s, but then seeing the special section off to the edge of the base where we got B-52s and motorhomes all parked there. And you've got the crews that are staying there and they're on alert 24-7, uh, you know, loaded for bear, so to speak. So that was always pretty surreal. But then those, you know, those night, uh, uh, night arrivals or night departures out of there to go back um seeing the lights of the city uh, even though spokane's not a huge city it's still uh, it was still really spectacular yeah you're talking about giving traffic and i'll uh, as an air traffic controller i remember the first time that uh, we had a b-17 come in on the tour to our airport and uh it was out giving rides south of uh, the city and it was coming back in and uh had a citation i think call up you know inbound to our airport it was the first time I ever had to say uh, you're number two behind a B-17 on left base, <laughs> you know, and he's like, well, there's something you don't hear every day. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no so it was kind of fun giving traffic of something of that nature. Yeah, there's an interesting <laughs> story about that that happened down in Madison when I was down there on a flight one time, and, and EA's B-17 was on the way through going somewhere, and they were landing at Madison, and there was a uh, regional jet taxiing out for takeoff, and the tower controller said, uh, you know, whatever flight airline flight number it was, hold short for the B-17. And the actual response back from the cockpit was, what's a B-17? Oh, no. <laughs> oh wow. So <laughs> that tells you how young some of the airline crews are oh, these my days. Gosh. There needs to be some swift education. <laughs> well, he got to see one. Very, yeah, he got to see close. one real quick. Yeah, that's true. He, he learned. a B-17. <laughs> I remember uh, super quick on my uh, long cross country for my private. I was in a Cessna 150 out of Mid-State Aviation, November 24883. I'll never forget it. And uh, was flying um, from uh, Walla Walla, Washington, which is a real place. <laughs> it's not just something Bugs Bunny made up that time. And uh, <clears throat> headed back, and uh, an F-86 came right over the top of me, like, this was the first time I'd ever heard another airplane while flying. So it was, it was close enough. I could honestly hear it. And then I get, you know, buffeted and everything else. And I realized I'm supposed to be freaked out and kind of angry by this. But it was just so awesome. And I had flight following. And I just, you know, got on the radio and just said, just, you know, just FYI, just uh, spotted, you know, this F-86 traffic right over the top of me. And so we don't have anything. Well, it was awesome. You know, just like seeing that B-52, uh, you know, several times. That was awesome, too. The V-17, uh, of course, uh, I'm, I'm sort of biased to it, uh, obviously, but uh, um, it actually helped get me into aviation. I was a kid. A uh, local airport uh, was rebuilding one, and I begged my parents to take me out. I wanted to see it, and we get out there. And um, literally, this is the quote me and my friend love to, to have, but I'm just standing there looking at this B-17 under restoration, and my friend Rob uh, was working on something, and he ran out of hands. People know how that is, and you're working on something. And I'm standing there, and he just goes, hey, kid, come stick your finger in this hole. 
I kid you not, that is actually how uh, me and my friend became uh, best friends. And that's uh, the uh, title of your memoir now. Yeah, isn't it? exactly. Right. There's a there's a there's a made for a TV movie uh, called <laughs> that as well. But uh, and what I I helped plug a, a line in in the uh, number three engine, and I remember uh, uh, that was that was my first taste of that, and I, I became a volunteer out at the local museum, and that led to my first airplane ride uh, with a guy named Bob Hudock. Um, he actually pedaled up on his bicycle, riding it backwards, sitting on the handlebars, and he pedals up, gets off, and he says. Uh, we should go flying sometime. And uh, I was like, I don't think so, man, you know. But uh, uh, he had a Cessna 170, a 1955 Cessna 170. And uh, I was I was 12, and that's where I got my um, – at, at the time, it wasn't called Young Eagles. It was an Eagle flight. Um, I actually have the certificate, and I was confused by it. I had Brian Olina come down and take a look. And originally, Young Eagle flights were called Eagle flights. And that's – I have an Eagle flight certificate. It was um, less than a year into the program when it started. Interesting. So, Yes, but that was my first flight out of Beaver uh, Beaver County Airport, Beaver Falls. Yeah, um, I, I was trying to think back to my first flight. It was actually in a glider. It was a glider in the uh, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Um, my my mother is a teacher, and she was um, at a uh, at like a teacher training course up uh, in far northern Vermont. And my dad and I for the day, um, she she took us with uh, with her for the you know kind of on a, as a vacation, and we. Uh, we took a trip over to Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and on the way back, we found this little grass strip that was offering glider rides, and it was uh, it, it was just an amazing flight. I mean, um, I've been I've been in a couple of other gliders since, but this was just kind of up through this mountain valley, getting the getting the lift off the hills, and kind of like just sitting, you know, with your wingtip off a mountain as you as you as you climb up, and at one point. Uh, he says, uh, "Hey kid, you want to want to feel weightless?" And uh, my, my, my oh, it, that's right. It was a it was a Schweitzer um, two thirty two. So it was a it was a three seat glider. My dad and I were both riding, oh, right. and um, my dad is like, "No," and I'm like, yeah, "Go for it." <laughs> uh, I bet your dad. I can kind of picture that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I absolutely can picture no. <laughs> and, and I love my mom, but this is this was one of those like "Don't tell mom" kind of uh, <laughs> events. So when I, when we came back, we were joking. Uh, he said, "So uh, you know, what did you do today? Well, we went up Mount Washington, and then uh, you know we had we had uh, lunch on the top, and then uh, you know uh, we took a glider ride, and then we went to this really great gas station. This <laughs> 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 yeah. great gas station. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, that's fantastic." Well, you know, a um, couple of stories come to mind just uh, bouncing off of what you fellas been talking about. But uh, you were talking about the F-86 that went right over your head. Um, and a similar thing happened to me. A friend of mine kind of coaxed me into going with him to bring an airplane home from California that he had bought. So it's like, hey, all expense paid to California, get to fly an airplane too. Who's going to pass that up? So away we went. <laughs> and uh, the airplane uh, was in Placerville, up uh, in Sacramento area. Yeah. And uh, we're going to fly this thing home. Well, we don't have oxygen, and we don't have any of that stuff going for us. So we're going to stay low. So we're going to take the southern route. We're going to go down to southern uh, California and then across the southern part of Arizona, New Mexico, cut across Texas, and then swing back up into the uh, central Wisconsin area. So our first flight was from um, Placerville down to we stopped at Fox Field in uh, Lancaster, which is just outside of the Edwards Air Force Base area and not too far from Palmdale. And so we're on a kind of a wide right base to land at Fox Field in this 
big shadow goes whistling right over top of us, moving really fast, and we both crane our neck to see, and it was an SR-71 going into Palmdale for some service or whatever, and it just went right over top of us. It wasn't, like, real ultra close, but even at that, even though it wasn't real close, it looked really big and really fast (laughs) and really cool, so we were pretty impressed by that. It was uh, the highlight, one of the highlights of that trip, for sure. That is just awesome. A a buddy of mine and I one time ferried a... uh, uh, an old 182 that was used as a jump plane, a skydiving operation, which if you've ever seen an airplane in a skydiving operation, you know, they're always they're always super uh, super clean, super shiny, oh, you know, really, really nice. well equipped, really nice airplanes. Um, <clears throat> we had to scrounge up a second seat, and then I had to <laughs> I had to borrow a yoke from another airplane to put in so that we would need controls. So the airplane had sold, so we were taking it from Snohomish, Washington, down to Phoenix, and uh, and the thing is, you know, it's bare metal except for uh, just the rudder, and the rudder had the name Larry painted on it for some reason. <laughs> so I said, okay, Larry, you know, let's go. And, uh, uh, you know, working our way down, I mean, number one, flying, uh, you know, over some of, uh, uh, like, eastern California and, and southern Oregon and places like that, um, even as we were living in Pacific Northwest, some of that scenery is still some of the most beautiful you've ever seen. Uh, we spent the night in Bishop, uh, California, right on the Nevada border, and just... Gorgeous snow-capped mountains. So a couple of things that really struck me about that trip was, number one, it was, it was about three days of flying, as uh, Larry was not equipped to fly at night. <laughs> um, Larry had a, a compass and sort of an airspeed indicator, and as I described it, and a monkey and a whistle was really all that he was equipped with. But uh, um, in that three days of flying, so in addition to this incredible scenery, that whole trip we saw one other airplane. And it just it strikes you. I think, oh my gosh, why... Why aren't, you know, all 300 million people in the U.S. just up flying right now? It's so beautiful. Why isn't everybody doing this? But your, your comment about Edwards reminded me, Joe, we got close to Edwards and we were talking to their approach. And they were actually super apologetic um, because they said, normally we'd, we'd send you right over the base. You get a good view of the dry lake and everything else. And they oh, cool, I want to fly over Edwards and Larry. Um, but uh, but they said there, was, there was a shuttle in orbit. And so they kept that airspace closed because of the emergency landing. So we, we had to skirt it. We still got a great view of that, was it, 15,000-foot no, <laughs> runway in effect out there. That was, uh, that was absolutely spectacular. You know, you're, you're mentioning um, the— Larry? Yeah, Larry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all got a Larry story, right? <laughs> well, no, just, just the, um, the, 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 that feeling of just the tremendous privilege of being up in an airplane uh, that, that you're talking about. And I think that's, um, that's some of the best memories that I have so far of, of flying, you know, taking long cross countries, you know, sometimes just by myself. Um, like a, a flight I took a couple of years ago from here to Maine and back in the RV6. And it was just, I don't know, it's just such a privilege to have a flight that just goes that well and have a flight where the weather's good and you see, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things I really love about long cross countries is you see the landscape of the country kind of change very quickly as you go along. So you you start with the, these big, um, you know, rectangular lots out here in the Midwest, and then you get to right about Indiana, central Ohio, where you start to get the landscape starts to change a little bit because those those areas were settled a little bit differently. Um, and then you hit the Appalachian Mountains and the terrain that comes with that. And now you're, you know, you're in New York and then into New England. It, it's it's just amazing. I think it's really uh, one of, one of the, the, the first times that I really appreciated that was uh, was when I was on that flight. It, it is a, a 
drastically different perspective. And it's funny, too, because sometimes the most sort of on paper, the most unremarkable flights, like you said, everything went fine, right? Yeah. So uh, to some people, that's uh, there wouldn't be a story there. You know, it was, it was at night and I lost the electrical system and it was in a thunderstorm <laughs> and everything. No, it was just a beautiful flight. And it just uh, it just worked, but those are those are so often the most powerful. But to me, they're also so many times they're the hardest to describe because yeah. you're just you're, you're sitting in your little chair and you're comfortable in your cockpit and you're looking out and you're seeing the world in a way that that with a view that nobody else has that exact same view at that moment. There's so many things you see from the air that's just impossible to see from the ground, and you, right. you think to yourself, man, you know, there's so many people that don't even know this exists yeah, or right. don't know that it looks like that, you yeah. know, because the way you see something from the ground is just, a, you know, such a limited perspective. When you see it from the air, it's just amazing. Yeah, you start to feel sorry for the flatlanders. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. then you thump your chest, say, I'm a pilot. <laughs> I can do well, this. You know, it's, it, it's exactly, you, you guys touched on a few things, but I remember my first solo, um, I mean, stereotypically, the, you know, my flight instructor tells me, uh, all right, you're going to go up by yourself after I did a few touch and goes. You, you touched on something I thought was interesting, how you can still remember the end number. Oh, you yeah. still remember the end number of some of your favorite planes. Yep. 601 Foxtrot Lima and 571TU are the two that I always use, the two Cherokees. And uh, out of pro flight, but I remember that first flight when you took off and you go, I started going north, and there's nobody with you. And you're just looking out the window, and you, you can't help but feel – this sounds cheesy, but you, you almost feel like Lindbergh or something. You're like, <laughs> nobody – like, this is such a cool adventure that I'm going on. I, I think I was only going, like, 10 miles out on my first uh, solo – it was my first cross-country solo yeah. or something like that. I was just going 10 miles north up to the practice area to do maneuvers. But I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is so cool. Why wouldn't everybody want to do this? My first solo in uh, 150, 5294 Quebec. Um by the time it like it all hit me, that, oh my gosh, I'm really doing this. I'm really flying stuff. You know, I'm 200 feet above pattern altitude because things climbing so <laughs> yeah. well without <laughs> yeah. uh, without my buddy Kurt. Hi, Kurt, uh, in the yeah. right the right seat next to me. And then uh, uh, for some reason, I started singing. I was just so <laughs> ridiculously happy. <laughs> Little and, did he uh, know that his mic was hot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> stuck mic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've been there, but not that time, mercifully. But uh, or at least nobody nobody was cruel enough to say anything. <laughs> The uh, the um, my first my first solo I think you stay in the pattern we did three yeah, full stop landings usually, yeah. I remember on my last one like the clouds closing so I just had enough time to get it in um, but it must have been my second where they make you go up and do some maneuvers in a practice area and that was uh, um, that, that was just that's probably absolutely the most special flight I ever had was just that one like I just it just sticks in my mind. Yeah, I remember on my first solo I looked across the, the cockpit and it's just like yeah you see the empty seat it's like well, yeah. either I'm going to land this thing or it's going to be a really bad day. And then yeah. you land it, and then you taxi back. It's like, all right, I guess I'm going to try this again. <laughs> uh, my first, I, I, I vividly remember thinking, how did I fool these people into thinking yes. that I could fly this airplane? I remember thinking that. As I'm taxiing out, Brad Goss is my instructor. He's just standing out there waving. You know, and I'm like, I, so that, I'm, I'm, that I'm never going to see Brad again. Yeah. This is it. You know? you know, it's kind of funny because I'm, I must be in a very small minority of pilots, but I don't remember my first solo flight at all. Really? Uh, and part of the reason is because um, just the way my flight training came together, uh, it kind of like all of a sudden I had this money to spend on flight training and I just jumped into it. And we are, I was almost ready to solo before the instructor said, hey, you need a medical before you can solo. And it's like, what's that? And so he explained to me what a medical was and how I had to go get one. And so, of course, I had to try to make an appointment with the only uh, AME in the 
area and he was busy and he was gone and all this stuff so it ended up i delayed in getting my medical to the point where three or four flights before i actually soloed my instructor said well you're really ready to solo as soon as you get that medical we'll solo you so i mean i had all this time that i sure. could build up to oh well, i'm ready to solo this shouldn't be a big deal so when it actually happened it was just kind of run of the mill it was like okay so i'm gonna fly the airplane i've been doing this for quite a while now <laughs> i think i can handle it you know and so it just didn't have a any kind of a real impact on me at, at that point it's just kind of strange but uh, i remember my first helicopter solo that oh, was more that's, exciting that's but i don't cool. remember my first airplane solo that's that's interesting the uh so you didn't have the imposter syndrome that the rest of us <laughs> no, like, what no, are we no. really doing here? Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. The uh, um, the flight that I probably remember uh, that had almost the same specific impact as my first solo, first solo in a 150, although I, I'd done some ultralight flying as a teenager before that. But then uh, when I was, gosh, late in my late 30s, after, after just a lifetime of being in love with these airplanes, I was... Uh, able to get adopted by a group of guys up in Canada and, and brought into their fold and got checked out in the Tiger Moth. And we went out to this uh, uh, glider port out there, which is, if you ask me, every airport in the world should be like this. It's just a big grass square. And there's a windsock <laughs> off to the side. Where the wind's coming from, that's the direction you go. So, um, and I remember going out there and it was just at sunset and had been been flying the tiger moth which is just total lifetime lifetime dream come true and then my uh, my dear buddy glenn says uh, says you're good to go you know give me three and all of a sudden i'm 18 again you know and it, it felt just the uh, it felt just the same way i'm getting in there and then and then uh i wasn't singing but i was kind of just chanting i'm flying the tiger moth i'm flying the tiger moth i'm flying the tiger moth <laughs> and you know took it around and did my my landings on the grass and was just so happy and then the the milestone after that was uh Maybe about a year later, when my wife and dad were able to join me up there, and give uh, give both of them their first Tiger Moth rides. My dad, you know, a thirty thousand hour pilot since the forties, um, always loved these airplanes too, but had never never gotten. He's a little bit less shameless than I am about talking his way into airplanes. <laughs> so giving him his first uh, first Moth ride uh, was pretty powerful. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Have you, do you guys have any good stories about like taking um, taking non pilots uh, f for a ride? You know, our non pilot friends. I, I just I always love those those um, opportunities because this is something that we do every day. I, I just I love the contrast between something that's fairly routine for most of us who keep current and fly a lot, right. um, and almost everybody else who this is like the one of the greatest days of their lives, you know, young Eagle flights. And then, you know, some of our, some of our non-pilot friends that we, that we take for rides. I just, right. I just love doing that. You, and Tom, you've done a lot. I mean, I know you've helped me out a lot to honor Claire on his birthday. Uh, getting, I mean, every May we, I know for a fact, I mean, I, I've, you've helped out a lot of people getting their start. I know how you've also done a ton. You've done animal rescue flights. Yeah. Too. I've done young Eagle flights and animal rescue flights. And they're obviously they're, they're rewarding for different, uh, different reasons. But uh, but it's an important point you make, Tom, in that, I mean, number one, here's hoping that uh, none of us ever, ever take it for granted, um, you know, and that uh, uh, we've been talking a lot about different types of, of storytelling in my department, and it's, it's a challenge to get across to somebody, you know, if we say, well, what'd you do this weekend? Well, I got in the 172 and I flew to Fisher Boy again for lunch and I came back, and that, that on paper, that sounds very routine. It's like, well, I got in my Buick and I went to the grocery store. <laughs> um, but uh, if you have somebody with you or you, you, you 
Dakota kid in that 172 and it's a young Eagles flight, it might be one of the most memorable experiences they've had in their lives up to that point. And, uh, and you know, we, we just can never, ever let ourselves forget that. I had a really interesting uh, situation like that happen years ago when, uh, when I was still in Wisconsin Rapids. Our EAA chapter over there, Chapter 706, used to uh, combine with the Model A Club in town, and we'd put on a Wings and Wheels fly-in uh, in the summer at, at the Rapids Airport. And I had my Piper J-5 uh, Cub Cruiser at the time, which is a three-place airplane. It's a single pilot seat in front and a wide seat in the back where if you're really chummy, you can get two people in there. <laughs> and uh, so we kind of got done with the initial display part of the flying, and we started to give some rides. And this gentleman came up to me and says, I want, I want you to give my, my two boys a ride in your airplane. I heard it, you can get two in the back seat. And I said, well, yeah. And so I looked at the kids, and the kids are like, staring at me like I'm going to kill them or something. I mean, they were they did they didn't want to go and they told their dad they didn't want to go. And I said, "Well, you think this is a really good idea?" And and their dad who'd been flying and knew what was always nice, no, "I really want you to take them flying. Just they might be a little skittish at first, but I really want you to do this." And so all right, so I got in the airplane, and he shoved his two kids in the back, and they were kind of, they weren't really fighting him, but they weren't happy about it. And so I'm taxiing out, and I can hear them talking amongst themselves in the back, and they're like, I don't, I don't really want to do this. And, and I start to take off roll, and just as I get high enough to get above the trees, it goes totally silent in the back. And all of a sudden, the kid goes, this is awesome. <laughs> From that point on, it was, hey, look at that. Hey, look at this. Hey, look at that. And they just totally loved it. So, I mean, it was just an amazing transformation. It's really cool to see that kind uh, of thing. Isn't that the best feeling? Yeah, it was yeah. great. I was worried you'd land and then their real father would show up. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Get these kids to Mexico. <laughs> no, nothing like that. It was, uh, it was really cool to watch what that a, transformation. Yeah. One, one day feeling. we had uh, a couple friends went out to a park, uh, air park out in Moraine, uh, Ohio. And uh, you're talking about something that for us is normal, but for others maybe it isn't, is um, my friend Andy Hines took a friend of mine up uh, in his biplane, in a Waco biplane, open cockpit. And he, they came back and landed, and, of course, we took some pictures and things like that. And I visited my friend, and Darren has the pictures up on the wall and in his living room. And it's that was a dream come true. He'd always wanted to fly an open cockpit biplane, and this is something that you know, we've been out there a good bit. It's just something that you do when you're out there and go see Andy. And this was like, no, this is like a lifetime dream come true. Like it was such a big deal that it's prominently displayed, you know, in this home. That that day is something to always remember. It's, it's powerful because I think I, I think we love it every bit as much Oh yeah. as, as somebody yeah. like that does. And I think we appreciate it every bit as much. But but there is something, you know, there is something really remarkable about uh, about being able to deliver you know, what, what might be at least up to that point a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, I, I just remember when I was a kid, and, and this, this kind of, I, I'm reminded of this every time, I particularly when I take young eagles up, but, uh, but, but everybody really, um, that moment when you walk past, like, the public area, at the, you know, I, I remember when airports didn't have fences, but there was right. still kind of a, an area where you were supposed to be if you're a member of the general public, and then you could go out across the tarmac. And just the feeling of walking across the ramp yeah. Oh, yeah. to the airplane yeah. it's like, like one of the Beatles <laughs> yeah 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 because the ramp the ramp's empty you're walking toward yep. this airplane and we're gonna go fly this yep. that yeah. that's just such a and there's a sign yeah. behind you that says authorized personnel right yes. yeah yes. Yes. yeah I'm, I'm authorized yeah that's right yeah all right yeah. I got this. <laughs> one of those special ones that that I've got to call out is uh I got to go fly up to Green Bay in the b17 and uh there there's only me and another person another crew member in the back in the waist section of the airplane 
But I'll never forget just taxiing out more than I remember flying because I'm just thinking in my head how many guys were back in these things back during the war who were taxiing out. And you're watching the airport go by all the waste windows. And it, I could just think of watching your base go by thinking like, what, I, you know, were these guys thinking like, will I ever see this base again? You know, right. will I make it back from this mission? And that was uh, it was just a really special flight. Anytime you get a chance to go up in something with some history like the, the 17 or the Ford or, or whatever. I think that's one of the most incredible things about, uh, uh, you know, vintage aircraft and, and, and maybe especially Warbirds is uh, thinking about flying something like like um, I got a B-17 ride in Fuddy Duddy many years ago um, and then thinking about stuff like flying the Moth that I was talking about. So the, the Moths that I've flown are Royal Canadian Air Force and would have been used, uh, you know, extensively during World War II to train train pilots as part of the Commonwealth Air Training Plan. So you've got Brits and New Zealanders and Aussies and Americans and everything all training up in Canada before they go off to war. And uh, so I'm flying these airplanes main, you know, in the same airspace, out of the same airports uh, that guys would have flown in you know, 60, 70 years earlier. And then in thinking how bizarre it must have seemed to them that if you you know, you go back in time and tell them, hey, 60, 70 years from now, we're going to be doing this, but it's just going to be for fun. <laughs> you know, you're here saying, I got to learn everything I can and I got to get through this. So I get to the, the Harvard. So then from there, I get to the Spitfire and uh, and then I go fight the Nazis. And we got to try to save the world from monumental evil. And I'm just saying, this is just so much fun. <laughs> you know, I have, having that that incredible privilege with any of these older airplanes to just stop and enjoy it for its mm -hmm. own sake is uh, is humbling. Yeah, I um, had a uh, kind of a uh, one of those flashback kind of moments when uh, the first time I flew a T six uh, because my great aunt Joe Sauer was a Rosie the Riveter. Oh wow! Oh wow! And uh, she, she, you know, she built T sixes in Fort Worth, Texas, so she probably drove rivets in that airplane. Isn't that incredible? That is just powerful. And, and anything you can take something like that, you know, I'm not going to turn it into a, a swords into plowshares hippie or anything. But uh, when you can take something like that and just appreciate it for what it uh, for what it is, it's not an emergency means to a, to an end yeah. in in combat. It's it's that let's let's have this incredible, unbelievable privilege and luxury to step back and say let's just uh, let's just savor this incredible machine for uh, for its own sake yeah, yeah and, and joe I, I did want to uh, touch on the uh, the vintage world a little bit which you know you're you're very well connected with uh, you know for for those of you listening who have never had an opportunity to fly in a vintage aircraft before i really encourage you to uh to, to find one because uh, th those have been some of my favorite memories i remember a couple of years ago um uh, max platz and i flew down to uh, blakesburg mm -hmm. in uh, in ed lahendro's j3 cub and that was one of my favorite flights just because, I mean, you're flying along at 1,000 feet, probably less than that, um, and, you know, with the door hanging open. Actually, well, we closed the door because we had to in order for the airplane to go fast enough that we'd make it home <laughs> before sunset. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you just, you just fly along, you know, with the door hanging open, see the landscape go by. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's, it's a kind of flying where I feel like you feel much more connected to the ground. Not just because you're flying low, but because you you can you know you could fly over a cornfield and smell the corn. Oh, absolutely! You know? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know you fly vintage airplanes and you really it's it's like riding a motorcycle in a lot of ways where you're 
totally engaged in the environment around you. You're not encapsulated in this machine. You are right. basically taking in. You can feel the wind. You can smell the the <laughs> the pig farm that you fly over. <laughs> and that happens when you're going to Blakesburg because there's a lot of pig farms down that way. Yeah, that's true. Um, but uh, you know, it just it really it really connects you with the whole. It's a, just a much broader experience than just being in a vehicle. Well, and there's something about uh, about this part of the country too, about the Midwest that I think in some ways more than other parts, but I know that there's, you'd find this in any region. Um, but where the, once you're at 800 feet, the landscape really doesn't look any different than when uh, this uh, J3 you're in was new. It's true. You know, if you're low enough to recognize types of cars and things, you get close to cities and things, you start to, to uh, get that sense. But the, uh, you know, as far as the airplane's concerned, as far as that rolling farmland is concerned, uh, it might as well be, you know, 1940. Right. And uh, um, and I think the other piece of that for me is the fact that, uh, you know, we guess we have GPSs on our phones and things like that. So navigation is certainly easier, but there's there's nothing magical just because I'm flying a Champ or a Cub or a Tiger Moth or something in the 21st century. There's nothing that makes it any different to actually fly. It's no. not magically easier to fly now because of technology. It's it's uh, you know my hands and feet are are doing hopefully the, the same things that you know that the actual good pilots were doing <laughs> decades earlier well i think it's also a real privilege about flying out here in the midwest is that um you could do a lot of flying without talking to anybody um right. you know i where i learned to fly you know outside a major urban area you have to have you know if, if you're going to fly cross countries anywhere uh it's a good idea anyway to talk to atc because the traffic's just so dense but um on a couple of legs of that flight man we um we just we took our headsets off and just put earplugs in. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if he wanted me to fly, he'd shake the stick. I'd tap my head, shake the stick, and I was flying. And then if I wanted him to take it back, I'd shake the stick, point at him. He'd now, take it back. Now, Chris, as our, uh, as our resident ex-air traffic controller, are you <laughs> deeply insulted by the fact that Tom doesn't want to talk to your kind? It's uh, it's safer when he doesn't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it, well, it, you know, it's really um, – interesting uh because there was a big thing where even out in indiana where i was that a lot of folks didn't want to talk to atc so they would actually send me out to airports uh to basically beat people up to come talk to atc no um, say, but say, we're not scary yeah, yeah bring it on no they but it was something that uh i enjoyed i guess from an aspect i under, i totally understand it from the flying side of it. it's it's relaxing and kind of cool to not not talk to anybody from the atc side I loved, I loved it. You know, I, I felt like I was part of a community. It wasn't just, you know, moving dots around. It was, you know, everybody, you, you started to know people. And um, I can really, if you've ever seen the film One Six Right, uh, Phil, the air traffic controller on there is actually a friend of mine. And I totally understand something that he said. When you're, at, when you're in a facility after a while, um, you get to know everybody, especially the aircraft that are based on the field. We had a lot of corporate traffic at our airport. And you'd clear someone to land and, and they'd come back on the frequency and they'd say, uh, uh, you know, you'd say, uh, I don't know, uh, citation four, seven Delta runway two, seven clear to land. And they'd come back and say, you know, Roger, Chris, clear to land on two, seven. And there was something cool about hearing that, hearing the, the, that they knew who you were and they just called you by your name, which is totally not right. But, <laughs> but they're just, it made you feel like you were part of this cool, big Lionel train set or something. I, I, I have no other explanation for it, but it, it was one of my favorite sort of moments in my career was when, when you'd hear them. 
identifying who you were and you know like, oh you're working the night shift tonight like yeah i got night shift you know and it's a lot of fun i think that the train set is actually a really good metaphor <laughs> yeah um the uh, uh i think it's it's like anything else there's a there's a time and a place uh because certainly as as all of us here working for eaa we're we're about nothing more than community and connecting and things like this and there's a there's a time and a place for uh for flying as tom as you were saying to be a very uh just personal solitary or semi-solitary endeavor and uh and that is uh, that is powerful in and of itself and there's a time too when uh, you you want nothing more than to go either go through the busy airspace and chat with the controllers and get flight following and, and feel like you're integrated into the system or or on a different level go to a just go to a big fly-in and hang out with everybody have your pancakes but there's there's definitely some of those moments like that resonate with me tom about uh about flying with just one or two people just just the two of you and and you know at times feeling like you might be the only uh, the only airplane out there well, and about ATC, too, I mean, I, there's absolutely a lot of great memories I have on the opposite side of that. Um, I mean, what's cooler than uh, I was on a flight one time going up near Green Bay, and it was in Jan- January. It was during the playoffs. And I'm on the same. Go fre- sports. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm on the same frequency as the uh, as the Cowboys as they're uh, as they're coming in for uh, uh, to to to, uh, to land in Green Bay for the game. Cool. Well, <laughs> And you're also the guy who flew, what, the 172 into O'Hare? No, I flew, I flew the RV six in the midway. The RV6 uh, and in the midway. Yeah, I was uh, uh, me and a buddy. We uh, we oh. we went down there, and, and that's Midway Airport, not the Battle of Midway, <laughs> just to be, or the island. That would yeah, be or, uh, yeah. that would be quite the endurance island. for an yeah. RV six. So, yeah, tell me about that time over Macho Grande. <laughs> yeah. Tom. I'll never be over Macho Grande. <laughs> tell that to George Zip. Yeah. <laughs> so I, got, I do have a great story as a controller, though. I was uh, working in Elkhart, Indiana, and it was my first summer. We had an air show out there, and. My first time ever working in air show. And the aircraft, it was arrival day, so the airplanes were due in, and I'm, I'm kind of excited. Uh, funny story, my first, uh, I, you know, I was pretty new as a controller, and someone says, there's, uh, radar calls and says there's a TBM inbound. I'm like, oh, man, cool, an Avenger, you know. <laughs> and uh, here comes this, you know, obviously a single-engine sort of corporate plane. I'm like, oh, that's not an Avenger. <laughs> but the story I had to tell you was uh, – Corsair came in, the first Warbird I ever uh, controlled. And um, Corsair comes up, asks for a low approach. We give him a low approach. And uh, he's coming up, and I had my camera there. I'm like, oh, cool, I'm going to snap this neat picture of this Corsair going right by the tower. And right as I'm getting ready to snap it, my coworker who was working ground pulls the shade down on the control tower right in front of where I was about to take this picture. So I blew the picture, you know, and I said, oh, man. Yeah, I was getting ready to take a picture, and he goes, oh, I didn't realize it. He goes, well, you're the controller. Tell him to do it again. And uh, I was like, Corsair, uh, you know, Niner Papa Tango, you want to do that again? He's like, yeah, I'll do it again. And he came back and made another low approach, and I got my cool picture. So, wow. so remember that next time you get an instruction from, from the tower. It might just be somebody wants a picture. Yes, it might be, uh, you know. might be somebody like Chris, kind of drunk with power. Yes, yes, exactly. Lawnmower, you could cross the runway. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I have spoken. Yes, exactly. Oh, All right. Well, looking at the clock, I see we are uh, up against it. And, uh, boy, as always, the time has just zipped has zipped right by joe thanks so much for uh, sitting in with us today sure the, thanks for having me and very enjoyable it's uh well, I, th- I think we're going to do this one again I, I i have a feeling uh, that all of us have another couple hundred <laughs> stories we can uh, we can try it out several of mine are true uh which so they've got that going for them 
Uh, but with that, I want to say uh, ongoing thanks to uh, our uh, senior producer extraordinaire, Ty Windish, who sits behind the board and puts this all together and does all the editing and uh, takes the, uh, the 20 to 30 hours of raw audio that we give him and, and distills it to a distinct 30 minutes. <laughs> I wish it was that was the case, but uh, and uh, thanks uh, as always to everybody out there for the feedback. Um, we uh, we've gotten a lot of comments from people about uh, about some mismatch volume levels, so we're we're hopeful that uh, by the time you hear this, uh, that you're going to see that that issue's been resolved. Uh, we appreciate the ratings on iTunes, the comments on social media. Please keep that stuff coming. That's uh, that's how we know that this whole uh, crazy experiment is working. So with that. Uh, We'll look forward to talking to everybody next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.